0: Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 55. We are in the second part of this chapter. It is one uh, complete thought. Um, it builds up to verse 6 and verse 7. And then um, verses nine or 8 down to 13 um, reinforce what has been set forth already in the earlier verses. We close with verse 6 and 7. We'll actually start there again today so that we can... Um, see its context. Alex Moyer, who is one of my favorite uh, commentators, just died just over a year ago now or so, um, wrote a masterful commentary on Isaiah I quote from often. He divides the book into three parts, and most scholars agree with these divisions. They just call them or entitle them different things. Um, The first 37 chapters of Isaiah, he calls it the book of the King. Um, He looks at them as three different volumes or three different books, not to be uh, confused with three different authors, just simply three different um, emphasis, uh, points of emphasis. And the book of the king, God is sovereign over the nations, and he holds the nations accountable. uh, The first third of the book, the book of the king. Then chapter 38 to 55, where we end today, he calls this the book of the servant, which you by now can understand. And it builds up to chapter 53 where the servant of Jehovah, Messiah, the anointed one, finishes the work of redemption. The the king declares in the first portion the sinfulness of man, the judgment that will come to man, um, what man deserves, how God is in control of all these things. The middle third shows how God brings redemption through his servant, his anointed one. And so that's the middle section we end today. The last section, which we'll start again August 21st, the next time I'm here to preach, I think the 27th actually, the time I'm here to preach again, will be on the book of the Conqueror. Um, the king has done the work, or the work has been done through the servant on behalf of the king, and now he begins to conquer or or bring people to himself. Uh, the impact of the work of the servant is seen in the last third of the book, which we'll be coming to soon. It's a wonderful um, approach or flow that the Lord has given us to see how God um, does his work, how He has done it in the past and does it now and will do it in the future. With that, let's again return to Isaiah 55 and see these last verses of this middle section of Isaiah on his great and perfect sacrificial servant. I will be, begin reading God's inerrant inspired word at verse 6 of chapter 55. The Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy, and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we come seeking your wisdom, so we open your holy word this morning once again. Send your spirit to open our eyes to the truth of your word, and change us by the message that we encounter. We seek you now. And call upon you to feed your people spiritual food so that we might forsake our sin and live in true joy and peace as only you can give. And have purchased by the perfect sacrifice of our Savior Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Last week we looked at the opening seven verses and we saw an invitation to feed upon the feast of God's word. You remember, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's a call for the people of God who have heard his word declared, have heard of the finished work of Christ, to come and eat the food of the word so that we can grow. And it bids us at the same time to put off the stuff we've been wasting our time with, that we've been dawdling with, or we've been investing Energies in thinking it's going to feed us. That's what verse 2 of this chapter says. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. I have had occasion to know many people before their deaths, and the thing that they most regret, even wonderful Christian people, is the time they spent on things that didn't matter. And I think all of us can gather that a bit no matter how old you are. You look back and think of time wasted. And I'm not saying at all there's something wrong with leisure or something like that. But we know what this means. We go after things as though they're sustenance and they're not. And God's word gives us the real sustenance we need. It gives us clarity about the world so we know where energies should be spent. Now, with a diet of God's truth and the ministry of his Holy Spirit working, we're able to Turn away from sin and unto God. Even this side of glory, God gives victory to his people through his word, by his spirit, all based on the work of Christ for us to actually say no to things that beset us, sins that assail us. We see that played out now in the second half of the chapter. Very simply, if you were to summarize what the message is in these verses, seek and call upon the Lord. Forsake sin And live in true joy and peace. Now, that's not in a vacuum. You know it's anchored, it's rooted in Isaiah 53. It's rooted in God's finished work through Christ. Now, by a series of questions, let's go to the text and see how these questions have answers. They're important questions, ones that all of us should be asking. Seek and call upon the Lord forsake sin and live in true joy and peace. Who doesn't want to live in true joy and true peace? First, it says in the text, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The question we might ask, when can God be found? It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. The very first part of verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. When can he be found? We can rightly assume that the prophet is calling for people to respond to something that is available. Um, The prophet's call is based on God's being near at the moment he utters the command. The spirit of God gives the prophet, the spirit of prophecy, to speak God's word, to reveal God's will. And so when he makes this call, it's with direct knowledge that God is here. God is able to be related with because he has spoken. He is actually found now? Where can he be found here? In his word in particular. Isaiah wouldn't tell his audience to seek someone who could not be found. And one of the chief ways that God is present where we know he is present is by his word. The spirit pens the word and gives it to us timelessly. Every time the people of God open the word they have the will of God revealed. I mean it's that powerful. God is here. Um, When God's word is preached you know God is present. Now, we know from the word that God is present at all times. But we wouldn't know this for sure if the word didn't reveal it. So how do we know that God can be found? Because He's spoken his word. And we hear his word proclaimed. This is why the purity of the word going forward is so important. Um, I'll say this a few times throughout the sermon. Not that you're aspiring preachers, but you listen to preachers. Um, We should be preachers of the word, not preachers of sermons. You need the word, not my sermons. Now, as I preach the word, you might call that a sermon. But it's not the same. The presence of God is realized when the word is preached. Not when the pastor gives his ideas. Now, I should give you some ideas as a shepherd as to how to apply the word. What does the word mean? But it's the word that gives us access to the presence of God, a a knowledge of the presence of God. Without the word, we would not know how we relate to God. When can God be found? Right now, as the word goes forth. Seek the Lord while he may be found. It could be said, seek the Lord while he permits himself to be found. How does he permit himself to be found? By revealing to us he is. How does he do it? By his word. And ultimately, the the final manifestation of his word is the word, the divine logos, Jesus himself. The whole of the word points to Christ. That's the, the real driving message of the Bible is Jesus. And so, this is how we know he is here. How we know he can be found is because of the word, and it's being preached. It's read. It's discussed. We analyze it. We study it. This is how we are sure that God is here. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. When is he near? Call upon him while he is near. When can he be found? Now, as his word attests to his immediate presence. When is he near? Now, as his word requires the ministry of the Holy Spirit ...for us to even understand it. So we know where his word is preached, he is near. Now, he is near in every sense. He is near all of his creation, yet being distinct from it. He is present everywhere as he is a spirit without a body like us. And we know this because the word reveals it. So he's near right now to us. Right now, we have uh, the presence of God with us. Now, this is the doctrine of the imminence of God. It's an important teaching. Not imminence. The imminent return of Jesus refers to the fact that he can come at any moment. That's imminence. But imminence of God, that's what we're talking about now. How we know he's near. Stated more formally. The imminence of God, it's the belief that God's imminence holds God as present in all of creation while remaining distinct from it. In other words, there's no place where God is not. His sovereign control extends everywhere simultaneously. Jeremiah speaking a little after the time of Isaiah, in a desperate time also. As the mouthpiece of God, Jeremiah says, "'Am I a God at hand?' declares the Lord, and not a God far away. "'Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him?' declares the Lord. "'Do I not fill heaven and earth?' declares the Lord. "'Our God is everywhere. He's present with us, especially as his people. "'We know from his word he's near.'" So seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. He is found and he is near. In Acts chapter 17. Speaking of those who don't yet know God, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. So the immanence of God is something supported throughout Scripture as we see, even in the story of Israel that we have been uh, looking into through the lens of Isaiah. The very existence of God's word in written form here testifies to God's interest and action in the world. Israel's survival throughout biblical history and Jesus' incarnation, these bear powerful witness that God is present and involved. He's sustaining all things by the word of his power. Again, this is why the preaching of the word is so vital to the growth of God's people. It's described in its power just by this call for us to seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he's near. That's rooted in all this revelation that was just given. I mean, they wouldn't mean anything to the Israelites if they hadn't learned everything that came before it. They only know this because it's been revealed. The word of the Lord is how God manifests his presence among his people and reminds us that he is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. The presence of God is not a feeling or a hunch. You may say, well, I don't feel that. doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with your feelings. He's here now with us. He is present with us. God's presence is never related to how you feel. It has zero connection. Um, We tend to want to feel that. Well, I didn't feel this, or I didn't feel that. And I'm not saying emotions don't matter. I Don't hear me say that. But thankfully, our emotions have nothing to do with the sovereign God's presence. He is with us because his word's preached, his spirit's here, and the Bible tells us he is here anyways. He's everywhere. When we talk of the importance of preaching the word, we should not understate its importance. Again, preachers are to bring the word of God so that the people of God, experience God's immediate presence and receive his direct instruction. So this being the call in verse 6, how should we respond to the word of God? If the word, we're feeding on it as the early verses say, now it's telling us to seek the Lord while he may be found and uh, we are to call upon his name. Uh, What should we do in light of what God reveals essentially? Verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord. The response to the word of the Lord, his presence, being, is that we should repent of the things we're sinning, concerning. It's sort of like when a parent, um, kids can be acting unruly or whatever, and then a parent suddenly shows up on the scene. They're present, and everyone straightens up. The difference is, in this case, our father doesn't come and just bust us He comes with the remedy for our sin in the person of Christ. So it's not just a father busting us so we stop. I'm going to stop because he sees me now. No, it's true. His presence brings to mind the conviction that we should stop sinning. But it also brings to mind that he's provided for the forgiveness for our sins. And it gives us motivation to repent. It gives us what we need to turn from the sin. Not because he's our scary, scary ogre master, but he's our father who cares about us and has paid the price for us. And he's present. And so when we hear his word, we should not harden our hearts, but we should be open to what it says and we should turn from our sins. So when you read this, let the wicked forsake his way, that's kind of harsh. We can be honest. Apart from the righteousness of Christ, we're wicked. And so we fall into sin. And it says to his people, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. The reason why I know he's talking about his people Let him return to the Lord. It happens within our walk in Christ that we wander and we fall into sin. And he says, in light of what saved you in the first place, come back. Repent. Our confession and our catechisms do a great job of capturing the Bible's teaching on this topic. And the topic of repentance, which is spoken of here in verse 7, it's a call to turn from your sin and back to God. Listen to what is said in that question and answer. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it to God with full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. But when you think of the answer, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, where do we get a sense of our sin and where do we apprehend the mercy of God through Christ? By God's word. His word proclaims the message of the gospel, the provision of for our sins, and tells us what to do. It tells us what's true and what to do. Let the wicked forsake his way, that's the response. How do we respond to God's word? To his revealing himself, to his presence. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, let him return to the Lord. And here's the beauty of it. What will God do when you do this? Speaking humanly now, just in terms of the order that we experience, we hear the word, we know God's with us, he's our father who's paid for us, he loves us, we forsake our sins and say, Lord, I want to turn from this thing that's besetting me, this thing that's displeasing you, that's bringing you a bad name and me a bunch of misery, and it's not how I should be because I'm your child, and I want to turn from this. What will the Lord do when you do this? Will he scold you? Because sometimes as parents, we, we do show our kids love, but we want to give just one more lecture before. Are you really, do you really get what you did wrong? I just told you I didn't. God does not do this with us. What will he do? Look at the second part of verse seven. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Now this would be a, a statement with a certain emptiness to it if it were not rooted in what we know comes before. The reason why the just holy God can do this when we come to him he can have compassion on us and give abundant pardon. The reason he can do this is because his justice and holiness and righteousness has been satisfied in his servant on our behalf. This is why we can be sure he'll never forsake you when you turn from him turn from your sin and come to him. But I keep falling into his keep coming back to him. But I'm struggling. Keep coming back to him. He will never forsake you. He will no wise cast you out if you come through Christ. Isaiah fifty three is the bedrock. Surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. The Father delights in this, so when we come to the Father repenting, in light of that, he always accepts us. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for our guilt. It could be said that if we refuse to turn from our sin and come to God through Christ, it's like we're saying the work of Christ didn't count for anything. It counts for everything related to our forgiveness and God's glory. Out of the anguish of his soul, Isaiah 53 reminds us, He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He, the servant, was numbered with the transgressors. That's us. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. With that as the the roots of what is said in verse 7, the second part. Let him return to the Lord. Let her return to the Lord that he, our God, may have compassion on us and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. He can abundantly pardon because you have been abundantly paid for now in this light, in light of this revelation that we have why is it so necessary we are given this revelation I want us to think about the necessity of the revelation that we're speaking of, that we're supposed to be feasting upon, the food of God's word why do we need God's word verse 8 and verse 9 answers this question, look at verse 8 For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So first and foremost, uh, there are a couple meanings to this passage scholars will say. I think they all interweave. Um, First of all, the rules of mankind made up by mankind, apart from God, are always deficient. And ultimately, they're worse than that. They'll lead to death, and they'll change. And you'll see that in, in modern society, right? You just have a situational ethic or, or a social con- contract where people just kind of in a given culture decide that this will be the rule. This will be what's bad. This is, but that changes. Um, it's not, it doesn't have any timelessness to it. It's not rooted in, in, in an eternal word or an, an eternal absolute. Um, and so God wants to remind us here that we are dependent upon him to be right with him and to live in his creation We have to be right with him and know very humbly that our thoughts are not his thoughts. That means there is a necessity for him to explain to us what we need to know. We cannot, with all our research and all our science, ever come to know God as he is to be known apart from him revealing himself because, very simply... His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. In this side of the fall, our minds reduced even more significantly than it was at the beginning when we were just created. It says in verse 9, for as the heavens are higher than the, earth, higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It, it, there are humbling verses that remind us our place in our need for the word. We cannot become enlightened apart from God's revelation. We have general revelation of God's existence in all of creation. No rational person doubts God's existence when they see that tree, or they see that, those blades of grass, when they see the birds flying, or for that matter, the inventions that mankind has put together with the things God has created. A rational person will recognize that a creator uh, is to be given credit. Now, how they're related to their creator, though, they can never know unless he specially reveals it, and that's the word. That's why we need the word. And verse 8 and verse 9 remind us of this necessity because we can't have the same thoughts of God unless he gives them. Um, there's a professor at a seminary, William Barrick, who says very helpfully about this necessity of Scripture, this necessity of God's revelation. He says the following, Scripture is necessary because God willed to provide it and because mankind's condition required it. The image of God and man requires communication between God and human beings. God's incomprehensibility is another reason for the necessity of Scripture. We can't understand him apart from him giving us aid. Natural revelations insufficiency, that's what I was talking about, what you can see that evidences there's a creator. Natural revelations insufficiency to teach the nature of God makes Scripture indispensable. We need it. It'd be frustrating if all we could do is just see there's a God, but how do I know him? The complexity of divine truth would have eventually required a written revelation even for Adam had he remained in his unfallen state. The fall of man made made comprehension of divine truth in an oral form impossible because corrupt mankind is always prone to distort what is oral. God's special revelation had to be in written form. The work of God also makes written scripture a necessity, since scripture is the means that God has chosen to do his work in human lives. Without scripture, much would be left undone. There can be no question that scripture is necessary, Professor Barrick argues. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So, this being the case, why we need the word of God, because we can't comprehend him apart from him revealing this, What will his word accomplish? Verse 10. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Now this is not a scientific statement about evaporation. This just simply speaks of the the supernatural word of God producing fruit. Think in terms of the way the rain comes down it doesn't just hover around and disappear. It comes down, goes into the earth, and it brings nourishment, and it brings plants that which it needs, what they need to grow. So the word comes into the soil of our heart, and it, plant, and it, and it works to plant in us repentance, a turning from our sin and a turning unto God. Um, that's the power of the word. That's what the word does. This is one of the reasons why pastors genuinely are concerned when people don't, regularly sit under the preaching of the word. Um, They're worried that you'll get numb over time to repentance because you don't have the the rain of the word coming down on the soil of your heart and it gets dry. And you know what it's like to try to grow something in dry ground. It doesn't last long. It withers and dies. That's the real reason that pastors want people to be there. Now, I know for my part, I shouldn't be so boring that you don't want to ever come. On the other hand, I do need to make sure that the message of the sermon is the message of the text. So if it's boring, don't blame me necessarily. I mean, maybe some of it you can, but you know what I'm saying. It's not about entertainment here. This is about the food we need to eat. So, with that, the picture before us. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater... Here's that verse 11 that's so often quoted, rightfully so, about the efficacy or the effect of the word, the power of the word. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It's a beautiful statement on why uh, the word was given. To do its work of cultivating in us repentance and obedience. That's what the word does. It's his supernatural word always succeeding at accomplishing God's will. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, that's not just a, a warm, fuzzy, encouraging thought. Sometimes it's a conviction that we need. It's doing its work and we fight against it. Lord, it, you, we literally in our minds say, I know what it's saying. I'm sure this change should happen in my life, but I don't want to and I'm wrestling with it. the purpose of God is being done in us when the word goes forth like this. So if we compromise the word or we don't preach the word, you can see the great damage that actually does to our nourishment as the people of God. The word will not return without affecting its object. Another commentator I love is Franz Delitzsch. He says, As snow and rain are the mediating cause of growth and therefore the enjoyment of what is reaped, so is the soil of the human heart softened, refreshed, and rendered productive or prolific By the word out of the mouth of Jehovah. And this word furnishes the prophet who resembles the sower with the seed which he scatters and brings with it bread and feeds the souls. Of every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God is bread. In this immediate case, for Judah receiving this word, the word brought about repentance. The word of the Lord plants the seed of repentance in the heart. The seed does its supernatural work within and then bears fruit. As Moyer said, the Lord wills and effectuates the repentance which brings sinners home to himself into the freedom of his banqueting hall where we eat. One more time, I'll say, I'm going to share this message. I'll be teaching at a seminary for three weeks during my sabbatical and I preach on those Wednesdays to these student preachers, so I'll be saying this to them for sure. I'll probably use this. I'll probably preach Isaiah 55 two weeks in a row because it's so powerful for the the minister of the Word of God in training, for the minister of the Word of God at any phase of their ministry. Pastors need to preach the Word, not sermons. We're ministers of the Word of God, not ministers of sermons. The message of a sermon should be the message of that text. By the way, that's what expositional preaching is. It's not just going through the Bible in order. It's the message of the sermon should be the message of the text. That's what exposition is. And pastors are to feed the word to the people. We don't feed you sermons, we feed you the word. We might call the preached word a sermon, but not every sermon is the preached word. How do we benefit from the fruit of God's word, the last two verses, which again cap off this middle section of the book of the servant of Isaiah. So it's really these th- two last ver- verses of this section are kind of the summation of what's come before, and of course, they have immediate context that we've been looking at. Verse 12: "For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace, the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing." So the work of the word of God in his people will bring about joy and peace, immediately sensed but ultimately realized. Verse 13. Well, verse 12 starts to give a nature analogy or metaphor. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. So they won't be striving against nature, which has now uh, suffered the the ravages of the fall of man and man's inability to, to rightly have dominion over these things or exercise it. Now the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. I mean, these are direct references to a reversal of the fall of man. So the redemption of man as revealed by Scripture, accomplished through Christ, will not just redeem man, but because man is redeemed, God will redeem redeem the creation. That's actually his final memorial to himself. Not just us being saved, it's a regained earth, a renewed earth, Um, complete redemption of all that was lost in the fall, when that's restored, that will stand as an eternal memorial to the salvation of our God through his Messiah. So your salvation's uh, a part of a bigger thing that God's doing, for sure. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off, what a great benefit of this redemption God is working. What, how do we benefit from the fruit? Joy and peace in knowing how we fit into God's picture of redemption, his actualizing of redemption. I mean, right now, no matter what's going on in the earth right now, and there's a lot of messed up things going on, you can have a certain sense of joy and peace right now knowing that you are part of what God's doing no matter what kind of disarray seems to be happening in the world around us or in your own personal life. The, the redemption he's called you to, in the ongoing repentance he calls us to, that work that never ends in us, that will be fully realized in final redemption, should give us a sense of joy. That is a sense of contentment about the sovereignty of God over the details of your life. It doesn't mean happiness necessarily. Joy is better than that. Joy is no matter what's happening on the outside, inwardly, we then connected have peace. We're not restless about who's in control. Oh, Father, you are sovereign. Redemption. It produces worship. That's ultimately what we see in this final verse. It shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. I love this picture of regained creation. Finally, finally, In light of this and connected to this, the Apostle Paul, many years after the writing of Isaiah, some 760 years after the time of Isaiah, he writes to the Romans and he captures all of these redemptive themes into one section of the eighth chapter. Listen to what it says. Misconnects exactly with what is forecasted in Isaiah with regard to our redemption and what the benefit is. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Ray Ortland, who cites this passage, speaks of the full magnitude of the gospel. Full magnitude, not just you being saved or me being saved, but the full magnitude of what this means. Our salvation includes within its scope the whole created order. That's how big it is, that's what it's worth. Our salvation is not ours alone. God promises to renew everything. Ours is a salvation worthy of no one less than God. Even for people who are not personally redeemed, and as hard as this is to imagine, the judgment that they receive is still part of the overall magnification of the glory of God. In that way, everything is restored to right, and nothing is lost. The transformed earth as a memorial to God's victory. Isaiah 55, it's the beautiful climax to a 17 chapter devotion to the servant of Jehovah, Jesus. In this section that we have looked at, or in this section, I should say, 17 to 55, we've seen the need for a perfect servant to fulfill God's law and covenant because we have been sinful servants, unfaithful servants. In this section, 17 all the way, or 38 to 55, of 17 chapters, We have seen the need for a perfect servant's anointed sacrifice on our behalf. This section has shown us the detailed accomplishment of the servant's work of redemption. This section has also shown us the ongoing fruit of the servant's finished work as revealed by God's word to us. Dear people of God, because of the finished work of our Savior, seek and call upon the Lord, your Lord, your Lord, forsake sin, and live in true joy and peace. Let's pray. Lord, we are impressed with the power of your word and the story it displays about redemption accomplished and applied. Lord Jesus, we rest upon your finished work, not only to be made right with God, but also to continue growing in grace and maturity. Lord, your word is precious to us. We need your spiritual food. Give us an insatiable appetite for your word and please glorify yourself through its teaching, its preaching, and its life transforming impact on your people. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's together.